0: Um so I actually spent most of yesterday plumbing um far more hours than I intended so I hate to do this but we're going back to Ecclesiastes right So it's uh, that's what the day felt like in it, cuz it's not done Um all right now we're no we're in Luke chapter 1 this morning um Luke chapter 1 we uh, began Luke last week and we'll spend uh the next uh, several months working our way through this gospel, just chapter by chapter um, remember Luke is a, not an apostle um, he is a second generation believer um, most likely has completed this gospel in the mid sixties um, it's it 's connected to acts um, it 's a it 's got a sequel um, and he is working to provide a an orderly account um, to to show kind of this the story. Right before Jesus's birth, all the way through his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and then the early days of the church, um, of to see the whole story. Right, he's writing to Theophilus and to a larger audience, looking to give them certainty in the midst of, of fear and of doubt, because right now, um, in this this stage of history, right, the church is kind of being expelled from from Israel. Right, there there's tension, and what Luke is looking to show. Was that, that was not um, it was expected, right? but that they weren't they didn't set out in the beginning to be two separate things that the, the Savior had come to Israel, from Israel, for Israel, um, and then for all the nation. And so he's looking to explain why there's been tension, why there's been hostility. He's helping um, folks understand that that just because it's God's plan doesn't mean that everything's going to go smoothly and easily. Um, as we begin, Luke, we we are kind of entering a period of 400 years of silence, right? Malachi was one of uh, the last, there were a couple penned, roughly around 450 uh, B.C. Um, and so until John the Baptist and Jesus' birth, some 400 years later, there's really been silence. Um, and you, you think about how impatient we are. That when we pray for something, we want an answer like immediately, right? When we when we ask for something, we don't want to wait. We have to wait very long. We begin to feel like we're, we're martyrs, right? You can tell your kid, um, "Hey, give me just a second. I'll be right there." And they like lose their mind, like they melt on the floor. Like a minute. Like how long would that be? And like they just kind of freak out and panic. And you're going, "Hey, you can you can trust me. You can trust my character here." Well, what's going on is there's been 400 plus years of silence as the Old Testament has come to an end before the the New Age and the New Testament is really beginning. And so you're talking generations that have come and gone and come and gone, waiting uh, for the Messiah to to set foot, to come on the scene. And so let's pick up in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. We're going to stop there for just a moment and kind of introduce you to a couple of uh, characters as they come on the scene here. First is we have Herod. Right, who's the ruler um, over this area? Um, he ruled from 37 um, BC to 4 BC. He died in 4 BC. We see that in Matthew uh, chapter two as well. Um, Herod was a ruthless ruler, but he was he was accomplished as well. Right, like he he got things done. Um, it was not always um, in the best manner. It was often very very violent. Um, he was commissioned by Mark Anthony, that you might remember. From history, in 40, and then by 37 BC, he's ruling this area, Um, and so we have Zechariah, an older man, a priest. If you go to First Chronicles uh, chapter 24, you don't have to turn there at the moment, but what it what it shows us is the priests. The priests were divided into 24 divisions. Right, there were 24 groups of priests, and there were roughly. somewhere between 750 to 1,000 per division. There were a lot of priests, somewhere between 18 and 24,000. Um, and we then are told that Elizabeth, right, his wife, actually comes from a priestly line as well, that she was from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And, and so what Luke is showing us immediately is that Zechariah and Elizabeth have a, a priestly lineage um, that they have been... Faithful that they have been obedient, that they are both their spiritual and, and faithful. Because listen, he continues, um, they were both righteous in verse six before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This idea of blameless, I think, sometimes bothers folks as we see folks um, described as blameless, and, and what we hear is perfect, right? Of, of no need of Jesus. And that is not what Scripture is saying here. It's saying that they were faithful to the law. right? That The things that had been asked of them, that the law could do, that the law could provide, they were attempting to live faithfully according to that. Under it, doing what was asked of them, and they were pleasing God on that account. It is not saying that they had no need of Jesus. We can, we can show this in Philippians 3 as well. Um, Paul, as he's talking about his life, he says, He says this, beginning in uh, verse 5. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. So, uh, in, in this line of, of reasoning here, what he's saying is, listen, of all the things the law was asking me to do, I was doing it. I was blameless under the law. But he was an opponent of Jesus. And he was persecuting the church. So in no regards are we saying that, that, that Paul did not need rescue or salvation. We're not saying that Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't need rescue or salvation. It's just saying that as, as given of the law, they were faithful in doing as much as they could under the law. And then... We continue in verse seven. So we, we hear this that they're they're blameless, that they're faithful. Verse seven then should be a surprise, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now listen, typically um, in, in this day and age, for a woman to be barren, for a couple not to have children, especially if they were seen um, as as faithful, there, there would have been an assumption of shame, right, of, of reproach upon them that they had done something and God was punishing them. The reason they didn't have a child was because there was sin in their life. And so what Luke is showing us here is a paradox, right? He's saying, listen, your first thought when I tell you that there's an older barren couple is, well, it's their fault. Look at what they've done, how they've disappointed God. And he's saying, no, 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 they're actually blameless under the law. They've been faithful, they've been obedient, and they don't have a child. And so it, it's kind of creating this this scene that would make us begin to wrestle even as we begin, of, okay, we need to take note and pay attention. So let's pick up in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent, and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my word, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay um, in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So these 24 divisions of priests, right? each of them would have two weeks out of the year, two different times, one week at a time, where they would go and serve in the temple. So right? the priests didn't stay at the temple year-round, but there were always priests there. And so most of the priests would go during festivals and feast times, and then otherwise, you had two weeks where you would go and serve in Jerusalem at the temple. There were, like I said, 18,000 plus priests. And so what would happen is they would show up during their week, and twice a day, there would be a a whole burnt offering, um, and they would go in with incense. There would be times of prayer and worship. And because there's so many priests, they would actually cast lots, like, like dice to to assign who would get to be the one that carried the incense in. It was an honor, it was a privilege, and so that there wasn't nepotism or right in someone just picking their favorites, they cast lots to decide that. And you only got to do it once in your life. And so only those who were had not yet done it were available for lots to be cast. And so Zechariah you can imagine, has been frustrated over years, right, of hoping that he would get to be, it would be his turn, it would be his turn as he's an elderly man at this point. And now finally, you can imagine the excitement, it's a good day, like I'm going to get to carry the incenses, incense in, the holy roll, it's a big deal, and he's excited. If you want to read more about that process, you can see it in Exodus 30, talks a lot about the incense, like first Chronicles twenty-four, the, the, the divisions of the priest as well. Um and so they would carry the incense in, they would go up to the curtain, basically, of the holy of holies, to a place called the holy place. Um, and there they would offer a prayer, they would burn the incense, and the intent was that you would quickly come out, right? Because you're going into a holy place, people are fearful and worried, like if this is the wrong guy, is he gonna drop dead? Is something bad gonna happen? so you would offer a quick prayer and come out. And as you would come out, there were were typically five that had different roles that they were doing. And then these priests would come out before the people who were gathered to pray and they would say this. This is from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Right, so every time they would come out and they would pronounce this blessing from number 6 over the people that are gathered to pray. And so um Zechariah is now he's performing this once in a lifetime priestly duty standing back there holy moment praying and he looks up and there's an angel. And rightly he is terrified. Immediately right we see that he is afraid verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Like he was gripped, he was terrified. And what we see in scripture is that when people are before angels, they're completely and immediately aware of their lack, of their need. And these are simply messengers of God. Right? There's not presumption here, right? He's not going, oh, right? Like there's not a sense of familiarity. There's a sense of otherness. Of this is holy, and I very much feel like I'm not. And so as he's standing there afraid, the angel, which is Gabriel, um, encourages him, tells him not to be afraid that he has good news for him. And he tells him, your prayer has been heard. And most likely his prayer at this point was not for um, a child. He's been praying for that for a long time. They're advanced, right? They're not expecting children at this point. He was probably praying for the redemption of Israel. Praying, God, would You do what You've promised You would do? What we've been waiting over 400 years. like what, Lord, would You do it? Would You bring about the Messiah? Would You rescue Your people? Would You redeem us? And He's told, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And, right? And, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. So he's being told, "I we've heard you praying and we're going to answer it and we're going to, and you're going to get a son like it's a it's a twofer here, right? Like your son is going to be a part of bringing about what you've been praying for, the redemption of Israel." And and what Luke is doing here is he's drawing out a lot of Old Testament imagery. And so if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you may be feeling like you're seeing some of Genesis 12 and 17. And 18 taking place, right? When, when God has called Abram, who would become Abraham, to be to, to institute a new nation that would become Israel, that he and Sarah were older, without children, and he, God has told them, hey, your, your heirs are going to be a multitude. And I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and the whole world's going to be blessed because of you. And, and Aaron's kind of scratching his head going, but I don't have a kid, right? I don't have a son. And right, God provides miraculously in their old age a son. And the nation of Israel is born here. And so we have the Old Testament that builds upon this nation and the promises of God. And so what Luke is doing is he's intentionally drawing our attention saying this feels similar. An old couple without children right, who are now going to be given the miracle of birth to begin to inst- Institute a new era, a new age in the life of Israel. That they're going to be blessed, right? Because he says, Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. You'll bear a son. You'll call his name John. And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He'll be great before the Lord. He continues, right? Like, many will turn and, and turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so not only do we have this connection now to Genesis 12 and 17 and 18 in the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, it's happening in the temple, right? What he's doing is he's connecting the, ch- the birth of the church to Judaism, right? To the nation of Israel. It's happening in the temple. It's a story that sounds like the birth of the nation. And then I mentioned earlier that 400 plus years prior, when things had gone quiet, Malachi was, was the last writing. I want you to listen to a couple passages out of Malachi. The first is verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming Says the Lord of hosts. Right? They've been waiting with expectation of the one who is coming. You go to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you a lie to the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Right? Like the language is even the same. He's saying this is the one that's been promised. This is the one who is coming to prepare the way of the Lord. He's not the Messiah. He's the one that's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. It's the dawn of a new age. And so John is going to kind of stand as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is like a prophet of old, but he has the the role of inaugurating a new era. To connect the old with the new. So we see some things here about him. One, he'll be, in verse 15, he'll be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. Um, what we would see in the Old Testament um, in places like Leviticus chapter 10, uh, verse 9, that Aaron and his sons, it says, when you're doing your priestly duties, you don't need to be drinking, right? Like, you consecrate yourself for this. This is a holy role. Um, in, in number 6, there's the Nazarite vow, right? That, that they would, for a specific period of time, that they could determine, they would, they would make a vow, and during that vow, until they've accomplished what they said they would accomplish, they wouldn't drink. So what is happening here is he's saying John is going to be consecrated from birth. that he's got a, an intentional, specific ministry, and he's going to be set apart for it. He's consecrated. And not only that, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Remember, in the Old Testament, at this point, the Holy Spirit would come and go. It would rest on folks. It would come in specific moments and times, and it would leave, and it would depart. And yet, there was a promise that had been made. This is Jeremiah 31. Something that the the people of Israel were looking forward to And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. See, the people were longing for this day, right, where the Holy Spirit would come and rest, and the, and the law of God would be stamped on their hearts. And from the least to the greatest, the Holy Spirit, right, would be this equalizer who would come and would be, we can know God and be sealed by him because of the Holy Spirit. And so when John is told, when, when Zechariah is told that John will have the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb constantly, this is a new thing. This is a new and, and significant thing that he is going to have the Holy Spirit, that he is being consecrated and set apart for a work to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. That he's going to turn the people. And He's going to prepare the way and that He's going to go before the Lord. And so what would have been heard here was the Messiah's coming. Like if He's preparing the way, it means the one we've been waiting for is coming. The promises that have been told and foretold in Scripture are coming true. And there's a reason to celebrate and to rejoice and to have joy. And so, what Luke is showing us here in chapter 1 was just the need for divine assistance. Right? Zechariah and Elizabeth, there was no way for them to have a child. They needed divine assistance, the grace of God to give them a child. If you look at what John is going to accomplish, we see that the nation of Israel needs divine assistance. Right? He'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to do what? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. It means that they've been turned away. The disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It's important for us to note here, Israel wasn't ready. Right? Like they don't just get to assume because we're the nation of Israel, everything is good, we're good, God can do his thing when he wants to do it. They have they have fled from the Lord. They have departed from him. They have not trusted him. Right? We've seen this cycle throughout the Old Testament of trust and desire and belief and things go well, and then we begin to be arrogant and prideful and to think we have it all figured out. And so we turn to do our own ways and our own strength. And so it becomes this precipitous fall. Things get bad. We get overtaken. We get defeated. We cry out and ask God to help us. And it starts, we go back up. We trust God. He's faithful. He delivers us. We begin to believe it's us and not God. And we go back down. And we've been on this, this roller coaster. And I think like Israel, often here in West Texas, we just kind of assume we got Jesus. Why? because we're West Texans. Right? And that's, and, and that's offensive. And it's not true. The nation of Israel here has John the Baptist about to come on the scene and he's saying there's a need for repentance and a turning and a preparation so that Jesus can do the work that He's going to do in the hearts of a people who have been told to expect Him. That we would not assume that just because we live in the Bible Belt, just because we're in West Texas, just because we're in America, right? just because we live in a Christian-affected place, then it means we have Jesus. That we don't need to repent or to turn or to have our hearts prepared to meet Jesus. So it's not just that divine assistance was needed for Zechariah and Elizabeth, for the nation of Israel and for us. It's then that God is gracious. He gr- he grants a child to them. He he's bringing the forerunner so that the Messiah can come on the scene for Israel, which means that there's a Messiah, a rescuer for us as well. And so let's look at their response to the, the to the need and the gracious acts that were given. Zechariah honestly isn't great. Look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife, he doesn't call her old, is advanced in years. Church, Zechariah is in the holy place, standing before the Holy of Holies, while the nation of Israel is praying outside the door. He's burning incense while the burnt offering is taking place, praying for the redemption of Israel. When an angel appears before him, and he asks the question, "But how do I know? How do I know?" Right, like you—you you were just praying for this, and here God is sent a messenger to tell you what was going to happen. And you—you—and so what's going on here is there's doubt. There's a lack of belief here. We'll see others who will ask for signs and. And it's meant more to affirm it. What's going on here with Zechariah some. there's some lack of belief. There's some doubt here. And so Gabriel says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Right, he's told. Listen, you're going to get what I told you. You're going to get the child is going to come. He's going to be the one, the forerunner. But you're not going to talk until he's born. Like, you're not going to be able to speak. You didn't believe an angel standing before you, speaking on behalf of God, who stands in God's presence. Listen, if we're not, if if we're not careful. A sign, a demand of signs. And Luke's gonna talk about signs a lot can be when we demand and kind of ask of God, give me reason not to have faith. Prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt so that I don't have to have faith or belief or trust. Well there's then there's no need for it, right? When when you have whether it's a coworker or a spouse or a friend or a relative or a child, someone that you have developed rapport and trust. In relationship with and you've kept your word and you've been faithful to them, and you say, "Trust me, I'm going to do this, and they doubt it or push for proof, it's offensive to you, right? You're going, I've never given you reason to doubt my word. I've told you I'll be there. I've told you, I'll take care of it. I've told you I'll be, and until I fail you, like believe it, because I've met my word. Zechariah saying, I mean, I know God, you've promised all these things, but how do I know?" And so he's told, okay, you're going. It's going to be fulfilled, but you're- there's discipline here because you don't. You're not trusting me. Go back to verse fourteen and fifteen for a minute. How should he have responded? And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Right? Like he's saying, this message that's coming is a re- a joyous one. Because it's happening. A new age is dawning. Salvation is stepping on the scene. It'll be for all. And you're a part of it. Your son is the forerunner to the Messiah. Zechariah, rejoice and celebrate. Can you believe it's happening? 400 plus years of silence. Thousands of years of promises. It's here. It's happening. How do I know? How do I know? And so he's... Um Gabriel told us what our response should be to the good news joy, excitement, enthusiasm, and Zechariah instead has doubt. If you look to verse 24, 25, we see Elizabeth for a moment, and we'll we'll see her later in, in chapter one as well. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Elizabeth goes, I'm pregnant. God has done it. And in doing it, He has removed my shame. This pious, obedient, faithful, godly woman still felt shame because she had, had been barren. She says, look what God's done. He's not only bringing about the Messiah, He's intentionally and personally removed my shame. Both are taking place. Like The birth of John was a beautiful, glorious, shame-removing moment for Zechariah and Elizabeth as a family. And it also had ramifications that have affected us in this room 2,000 years later. Both are taking place simultaneously. So we can be encouraged in Luke 1... That God sees and He hears and He hears prayers and He's answering them. Right? Zechariah probably often wondered, why? Like, why haven't I ever been the one that got to go do incense? Why haven't I got to be that one? Oh, God, why haven't you given us a son? Like, we're faithful. Why haven't you done that? These things are being held and, and being waited for this moment. Right? That they would see the miracle and the miraculous nature of what God has done for the benefit of them and for the nation around them. That that faith would be built up. That joy would happen. That good news would be received. Church, for us this morning, that we would respond like Elizabeth. That we would be reminded that we have shame. Some of you feel it profoundly this morning. You can think about things that you have done are not done, and for some things that have been done to you that you had no role in, but they were they were done to you, and you feel the shame and and you've you've tried to be pious and faithful and obedient, like Elizabeth, but you're like i feel this feel this shame and and maybe it's relationally, maybe it's abuse, maybe it's it's finances, but I, there's just something that's happened, and you feel shame. And maybe you're the only person who even knows it. And, and no one would ever look at you and say, they're a shameful person. No one's putting it on you, but you just feel it. Here's the reason so often we feel that is because we know that we're standing outside the Holy of Holies. That God is holy and righteous and perfect, and that we, like Zechariah, if we're presented standing before Him, we would feel our inadequacy and our shame and our distance from Him, and our need for rescue. And when Elizabeth says, thus the Lord has done for me, He has taken away my reproach. He's taken away my shame. He's done that. Right? She's beginning to voice what the good news is going to bring. That God is here to take our shame away. That we are sinners who are distant and far from Him who are in need of divine assistance and God is the one who's going to do it. And He's going to remove our shame. Listen, this is Zephaniah 3, verse 19. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all of your oppressors. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcasts. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. God is speaking here. And He says, listen, I'm going to bring them all in. Right? From all the different places. All the different types of people. All the different situations those who are near to Me and those who are far from Me. And I'm going to remove their shame and My good news is going to transform them through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And you're going to be My people and you're going to sit at My table and you're going to belong as sons and daughters of the King. And what you have thought you were and what people have said you are will no longer be the truth because what I say will matter and what I say is your mind. It's why Zechariah should rejoice that this is era is dawning here. Then there's a hope for deliverance, for intervention, for salvation that comes from on high. And so our the question before us this morning is this, is how do you respond to the word of God? Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Do you believe that it will remove your shame, your fear, your doubt, that it'll give you certainty? That it will transform you because Jesus has lived the life you were meant to, died the death you deserve, and has beaten our enemies, sin, Satan, and death. This morning, that you can be clean and free, shameless, and belong because of what King Jesus has done. Like, this is it starting here. God is at work, He's at work. And He's hearing prayers, He's seeing, He's acting, He's answering, and He's bringing salvation. So this morning, my hope and my prayer would be that if you are walking in shame, that you would be hearing Jesus now whisper, that's, that's mine, I'll take it. I'm going to give you my righteousness. That you, if you have received that in the past, and yet today you're carrying shame that you've gone and put it back on, it's not yours to carry. Drop it. Like Jesus has freed you, cleansed you, rescued you, made you His. And this morning, if you think I am far too sullied, Jesus would never have me. That you would know that's a lie from the enemy. That Jesus can take any and all shame. You have not sinned too far. You're not too far gone. Jesus seeks and pursues and redeems the lost and those far from Him to make them family. Luke is going to compare and contrast the birth of Jesus and the birth of John over the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's going to highlight as good as John is, there's even something better coming. Would we walk out this morning with that same hope? That we can know the better. That we can know Jesus. And that He can remove our shame through His gracious act of sending His Son. Let's pray, Father. Often we can doubt, Lord. We we have a lack of certainty, a lack of assurance. Lord, and we desperately need to hear from you. God, would You remind us now as You speak through Your Spirit and through Your Word that You are in the business of removing shame, in the, in the business of bringing grace upon grace in our life. Father, that we are not most known for, marred by, identified by the worst in our life, but by what You have said about us. Lord, for those in Christ this morning, You have called us sons and daughters with a seat at the table, covered in the righteousness of Jesus, having exchanged all that we are for all that You are. And Lord, for those this morning who don't yet walk with You or know You, that same offer is available. So God, we would ask that You would redeem and that You would rescue God, that You would free us from guilt, that You would free us from shame. Lord, and that we would respond as Gabriel um, suggested with rejoicing and joy, wanting to pass that message on to all. Lord, giving you the praise and the glory and the renown because you're the one who has been so kind to act, to intervene in our life. Because of your kindness and mercy, not because of anything that, that drew um, your affection that we've done, but because of who you are. Lord, would you speak? In these moments, over the rest of the week, Lord, would it not just be things that we know, but things that we have been transformed by. In Jesus' name, Amen.